2: I'm Roland Oliphant, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, Russia says it has captured another village in its ongoing offensive in East Ukraine. Britain backs Mark Rutte as NATO Secretary General, and foreign correspondent Colin Freeman reports from the front line in Donbass.
3: Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava, Ukraini.
1: Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
2: Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 22nd of February, 2024, one year and 362 days since the full-scale invasion began. Today, I'm joined by Colin, who's been reporting from the front lines near Avdivka, and Joe Barnes in Brussels. I started with the latest military updates from Ukraine. But first, let's start with the military updates from Ukraine. So zooming on on the 600-mile front, the main item of movement on the battlefield is that Russia has said it's taken control of Pebeda. um That is a small hamlet. It's about five kilometers west of the next city in East Ukraine. If confirmed, that does mark another small step, forward, small step further west following the fall of Abdivka, um over the weekend. The relevant quotations from either side, uh, this is the Russian Defense Ministry, On the Donetsk front, units of the southern group of troops liberated the village of Pabeda and improved their position along the front line. Uh, That's the Russians. The Ukrainian response in a briefing, we are holding back enemy forces. The Russians are holding back enemy forces in Pabeda. The Russians are concentrating their main activity on the Donetsk region. That's um, Ukraine's senior commander in the area, Alexander Tarnavsky. Um, Now, Pabeda, for context, is a tiny hamlet. It's about four and a half kilometers, three miles southwest of a place called Marinka, which is itself a small town on the western approaches of Donetsk um, and which Russia finally claimed full control of that in December after months and months and months and months of inch by inch fighting. Uh, And the pattern here is that like Avdivka, Marinka is part of that old front line um, that emerged after the 2014 to 15 war. And where we haven't actually, for the most part, seen that much movement on it since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. The fall of Avdievka and then, you know, movement around here, around Marinka, um, suggests that line is beginning to move or more pressure is being applied to that line. We also have, moving further south, all the way down to the Dnipro River, we have a small update on Russia's reported capture of the Ukrainian bridgehead at Krinki. um, That's on the southern left bank near her son. Now, you remember that... Earlier uh, yesterday, the Russians claimed to have taken it. The Ukrainians denied it. Volodymyr Zelensky has now added his voice to the denial. His statement on Telegram, krinky our Marines are firmly holding the bridgehead. He said, adding that the enemy managed only a disinformation operation. And in this particular case, I think we can say we confirm he, he's telling the truth because the original Russian claim has been debunked by none other than Russian war bloggers who <laughs> helpfully located the, uh, geolocated the position of the video that was originally provided as evidence for the capture of Krinky by Russian forces and pointed out it had actually been filmed in a Russian-held position on the extreme eastern end of the Ukrainian bridgehead. There was nothing to suggest that the Ukrainians had been pushed out. And um, obviously, this is something that I'm in no position to confirm or deny. But the, the rumor going around on the Russian war telegram channels is that whoever came up with this idea, this false claim, was basically looking to be promoted to general. I'm not sure which particular officer they're naming. Um, I suspect that in their own little community, they don't really have to mention the name. Maybe they all know it. But there we are. Ukraine seems to hold Krinki for now. That doesn't mean they're not pushing there. As we've reported over the past couple of weeks, we've seen Russia intensifying its pressure all along the line, particularly in Krinky, Aravdivka, in Donetsk region, also in uh, Zaporizhia. Um, we've also had Ukrainian officials saying today that they're seeing a major concentration appearing up at the northern end of the line around Kupiansk, um, which, which, which may develop. Um, Mr. Zelensky was in Kupyansk um, over the past couple of days. He gave an interview there to Fox News, which Fox trailed today. Um, I believe the full interview will be out later. He plays down the significance of the loss of Avdeevka um points out that ukraine has retaken retook Kupiansk over the past couple of years but also says american aid is crucial if the aid held up in congress doesn't come through you understand this help is crucial without it sorry we will have more and more heroic guys who will be in hospitals if you don't have a real defending shield and a similar powerful artillery with rounds you will lose people and another update on russian war aims um Dmitry Medvedev, the former president of Russia, has been speaking, rambling somewhat, to journalists in Moscow this morning. And he said some interesting things about Russia's war aims. He essentially said that Russian forces must reach Kiev in order to end the war with a Russian victory. And that capturing the capital in the special military operation was key to achieving those goals. I'm just going to read out the quote because I think it's it's informative despite the caveats we have to use when quoting Medvedev. Um, Here's what he said. Where should we stop? I don't know but I think from what I've said we're going to have a lot of work to do. Will it be Kiev? Yes, probably it has to be Kiev. If not now, after some time. Kiev is a Russian city and from there is emanating a threat to the existence of the Russian Federation, an international threat. Although it's a Russian town, he goes on and says that it's being controlled by America and so on. He also says that they need Odessa back. Odessa come home, he said. We've been waiting for Odessa in Russia. This is our Russian city. Now, Medvedev, of course, plays an interesting role in the Russian government because he's a former president. He's obviously quite high up the hierarchy, but he doesn't really carry that much clout and not that many people take him incredibly seriously, which means he can be used to say things that the Kremlin can very easily walk back afterwards, which is one reason probably why you saw him rattling the nuclear sabre um, so loudly. Some of the biggest, most fiery threats about Russia using nuclear weapons came from Dmitry Medvedev, probably precisely because it's something the Kremlin can easily wash its hands of. Nonetheless, I think this does chime with current Russian thinking. I'm not sure whether the podcast covered it last week or not, but there was a report by Russi analyzing current Russian war aims just last week, I believe. And the What it said was that the current surrender terms kind of being put forward by Russian intermediaries at the moment uh, basically say we'll give you peace if Ukraine gives up all of the current occupied territory plus Kharkiv and Odessa. So I think there's definitely a consistency of theme here and we've got to remember that the Russians are definitely feeling more confident. At the moment, a couple of other updates. The French say that the Russians threatened to shoot down a French flight patrolling the Black Sea last month when it was in a free international zone on patrol, um, underlying tensions in the Black Sea. The Security Service of Ukraine says that it's found evidence Russia is using Hwasong 11 ballistic missiles from North Korea, and more than 20 have so far been fired. Um, and we'll have seen, you may have seen yesterday, um, a very thorough Reuters report uh, saying that Russia has received around 400 uh, powerful ballistic missiles from Iran. Now, so far, we haven't had confirmation from the Ukrainians that those have been used in attacks, but the reporting seems pretty solid. It cites um, a number of sources, including three in the Iranian government. So it, it seems clear that Russia is receiving those munitions from those allies that it began asking for some time ago. That is more or less the military situation today. I'm now going to call on Joe Barnes in Brussels. Please bring us up to date on what's happening around the world, politics and diplomacy today.
1: I will try and speed through, folks, because I'm sure you're all, as I am, really keen to hear from Colin and photographer Julian what they're doing in the Donbass. But we'll start with Britain has backed Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte to steer NATO through the threat or the threats, sorry, posed by Donald Trump and Russia as the Western military alliance's next Secretary General. So a UK official sort of background briefing to various correspondents, me and Roland, basically received briefs at the same time this morning. The Dutch Prime Minister has serious defence and security credentials, which basically give him the authority to lead the transatlantic alliance at what is seen as one of the most turbulent times that it's faced in recent decades. So we've also heard that the US and Germany are backing Mark Ritter's candidacy. So that means he basically could be named as Jens Stoltenberg's successor as early as April the fourth, which is when NATO celebrates its seventy-fifth anniversary. And UK so Lord Cameron and Chipping Norton, the foreign secretary, will be meeting his European and NATO counterparts in Brussels on that day. This is what a UK official had to say: The UK strongly backs Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte to succeed Jens Stoltenberg as NATO Secretary General. Rutte is well respected across the alliance has serious defence and security credentials and will ensure that the alliance remains strong and ready to defend and deter. So a little bit of background uh, on Mark Rutte, the Dutch statesman. He's been Prime Minister of his country for 13 years or so, but recently, as in last summer, decided to step down and said he wouldn't challenge the election in the Netherlands. He has essentially really been prepared He had announced his candidacy in November, but it wasn't really taken that seriously until quite recently when Donald Trump suggested that he would not come to the aid of NATO members refusing or not paying the 2% of GDP on defence spending target that NATO has set. And basically, Rutter is seen as, he's got this nickname, much like Jens Stoltenberg, as a Trump whisperer. He's seen as someone who is willing to stand up to Donald Trump One of the examples used by sources I've been speaking to is when Mark Rutter in 2018 went to the White House. He was having a press conference with Donald Trump, and Donald Trump went off on this almost unhinged rant about how European Union trade policy was anti-American, and Mark Rutter actually interrupted him and said, no, hang on, that's not right. We want to do business with you. We're trying to be good allies here. But he's also, Mark Rutte has gained this nickname, Teflon Mark, because he's basically seen as a character and a politician who's been able to defy various populist challenges. He's kept Cherry um, Burday and uh, Gert Wilders, sorry, who are two very popular Dutch populist nationalists. He's kept them at bay for 13 years and basically kept himself in power while being able to be a almost a political chameleon he's been anti eu when he needs to be he's been anti immigration when he needs to be but he's also known for being able to convince nationalist voters that he is a man that backs them so in 2019 he basically condemned what he said was a white wine sipping elite for criticizing mr trump's attacks on international organisations such as nato the eu and the world trade organisation and you'd have heard our reporting on this recently Mark Rutter's basically, his candidacy has become known as what is a three-pronged plan to Trump-proof NATO ahead of November's US elections. Basically, it's a bid to ensure that more than 18 of the alliance's 31 member states commit to spending 2% on defence um, and a more emphasis placed on US foreign policy priorities such as China in the Middle East. So a source that has been telling us, how do you manage a future Trump presidency? is basically a combination of flattery and a firm hand. Mr. Rutter and Jens Stoltenberg have shown they are capable of that. So that looks set to happen. Only Hungary and Turkey have really raised concerns, but their opposition isn't seen as insurmountable. But now let's move to other news. We have President Zelensky is reportedly proposing talks with Poland's Prime Minister Donald Tusk and President Andrzej Duda to address the simmering row over grain exports. Interestingly, the talks could symbolically take place on the Ukrainian-Polish border, which has become ultimately the flashpoint in this row. So Polish protesters, truckers, farmers have essentially snarled up the crossing. they blocked Ukrainian lorries and trains, actually, from entering Poland because the poles on the border... Are essentially upset that Ukrainian grain enters Poland and stays there, essentially being dumped on their market, bringing down domestic prices. So, grain is, of course, very, very expensive to move over land. Most grain is traditionally moved out of Ukraine's southern ports, so Odessa, but because of the military threat posed by Russia, in the Ukraine has done fantastically to negate that in the Black Sea, a lot is still being moved over land. So, Warsaw has been asking for Brussels, the European Commission, for assistance in resolving this row, basically by providing extra cash to help move Ukrainian grain from Poland, where foreign, where private companies won't do it because it's too expensive, not cost-effective, but also to give Poland a series of carve-outs from the rules that give Ukrainian goods unimpa- unimpeded access to the bloc. So I think that's a really fascinating talks And the Polish government even though the Prime Minister and President are from different parties, uh, Mr. Zelensky get on very well and are seen as very close allies. But now is this, this row I won't see as interrupting in that alliance. But what it does is it means that both sides have to be seen to put a wedge between them because they have to be batting domestic interest. So it's interesting to see if that could be hammered out. Then to some security assistance for Ukraine, Denmark has announced a new 1.7 billion crown, that's about 195 million pounds, I believe. Might be My math might be wrong, but I have just done that. Um, a military package to Ukraine that's done today and has appealed for allies to also step up and help the country in its war efforts. The package brings Denmark's total donations to about 33 billion crowns since the invasion two years ago this is what meta frederickson the prime minister had to say it is necessary to emphasize that if they ukraine are able to succeed on the battlefield more debt donations must come now it's in this light we will continue to make further donations in the hope that more countries will do the same not in six or 12 months but now the need is very very big so you'll know that denmark is working together with the netherlands to deliver f-16s It's also apparently part of these talks with the Czechs to deliver 800,000 artillery rounds to Ukraine. It's very active. And it's also basically joining the UK, Germany and France in signing 10-year security agreements with Ukraine. And the Danish announcement seems to be somewhat connected to a Swedish announcement earlier this week, which basically said that 7.1 billion Swedish krona, which is about 550 million pounds, will be donated to Ukraine in various weapon systems. Italy is going to sign its set to sign its own security package with Ukraine as part of the G7 commitments that were made at the NATO summit in Vilnius to sign long-term security assurances up with Ukraine. So the deal, Italy says, is designed to strengthen Kiev's defence industry and fight against cyber threats, and is a basically part of Europe's long-term promise to protect Ukraine in various ways. So for instance, Britain is focusing on naval assets, but it looks like Italy is going to use its own domestic defense industry and its capabilities in cyber to help that. And this is what Antonio Tajani has to say. Never before has it been so important to emphasize the will to ensure that the attacked David has the resources to defend himself against the Russian Goliath. Okay, and I'll have one more update from the Kremlin, who is rebutting, who spokesman is rebutting that Joe Biden's remarks about Vladimir Putin. And they have called, the Kremlin has called Joe Biden a Hollywood cowboy. This comes after the US president called Putin, a crazy son of a bitch, during a fundraiser in San Francisco on Wednesday. And I will stop there and hand over to Colin. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Joe, very much for that. And all those remarks from the Danes about how urgent it is to get arms to the front quickly, I think, is the perfect segue. Speaking to Colin, who's been over in Donbass. Um, Colin. I believe you've been on the road with with Julian Simmons for several days now doing reporting. And I've really been looking forward to to getting you on here to tell us what you've seen. And I think most interestingly for our listeners, I believe you have been over towards the new front line following the the fall of Avdivka. Um, so just tell us where you've, you've been and what have you seen?
4: Yes, we've spent about the last uh, three or four days trying to speak to soldiers who've been fighting in or around Avdivka. Um, And yes, it's, it's an interesting time to have visited. I've been to Ukraine, to this part of eastern Ukraine, numerous times before in the last two years. Generally, you nearly always get a fairly upbeat view from the soldiers that you speak to, or certainly the ones that I've dealt with in the past. This time, I've noticed a distinct change in the mood, I think it's fair to say. Not everybody, but certainly it's a lot easier now to find soldiers who cast a kind of Pessimistic outlook on the war. It's not, they say, due to their lack of fighting spirit. It's just simply that they feel upset that they've not got enough weapons, in particular artillery, but also things like drones, and also to some extent troop that lack of troops as well. And there is a distinct sense. While I don't want to over sound over-pessimistic, over there is a distinct sense that the war is not going their way right at the moment. I'll give you an example of what we've been doing in the last couple of days. Yesterday, for, we were due to go out to see a javelin unit, an anti-tank unit, who were going to be showing off a few Ukrainian armored vehicles that they had that they had uh, a, a few Russian armored vehicles pardon me that they had destroyed this is fairly typical of the kind of visits that the Ukrainian military lay on for the media usually trying to present an upbeat picture as it were although it's not overly censored then at six, about sort of 9 o'clock yesterday morning, we were told, sorry, that trip's cancelled. Um, the unit you were going to be speaking to got hit, heavily bombed just a couple of hours beforehand at about 6 or 7 uh, yesterday morning. They've suffered quite a few casualties. We can't do that. And then... that Just generally since then, frontline access has got a lot more difficult. You sense that the Russians are pushing on numerous different fronts. We did, however, get taken to see a grad unit that had a field of vision right over to Avdivka. Um, it's a long way away, about 15 miles away, but the territory here is billiard table flat, and across these wheat fields you could see Avdivka in the distance, the big Soviet-era coking plant that there is with a huge smokestack, and the outlines of some of the, the, the these hulking Soviet-era tower blocks that you see on TV, all blackened and burned and half-destroyed. A long, long way away. And uh, yeah, our military escort made a point of stopping by this wheat field where we had a good vantage point. And I'll quote what he said. He said, look, if we had enough shells, we could be destroying the enemy from spots like this as we have a perfect vantage spot. But instead, Joe Biden has admitted that we haven't given enough military aid to Ukraine. And now we're in the position where we have to decide which village we hand over next to the Russians. And then uh, to prove his point, he then took us to meet this team that were operating a Grad rocket launcher. Again, that would normally be something where you'd get to see the rocket launcher firing, partly for operational reasons and partly, frankly, to give visiting journalists like me something to write about and something to photograph. On this occasion, no firework display. The reason being that they'd more or less run out of ammunition. We were told how few units of ammunition they had left, but were asked not to publish that information. But one of the Ukrainian soldiers did it when I asked him how things were, did use a certain vernacular which summed up the situation quite accurately. He said, we are F-U-C-K-E-D'd. Uh, sorry, did I spell that right? I think you get the gist anyway. He was saying that things are not good at the moment. There's no point in being here if they don't have the ammunition to fire their weapons. And elsewhere, we got a very similar picture of people being outgunned, outdroned, outshelled, and just generally uh, a distinctly downbeat portrayal of how the war is at the moment. Mm.
2: I mean, it sounds to me like you and I have both been out there multiple times, and you get this kind of. Let me grasp for the words here. I mean, I mean, the point is, th- these are not the first time you or I will have heard those kinds of gripes. But it does sound to me like you're sensing that you put that over the graph of the past couple of years, you do sense a distinct, a distinct deepening of that kind of frustration compared to, I don't know, after the fall of Bakhmut last year, for example, or something like that
4: yeah I would say I mean I'm wary of confirmation bias here a little bit. I'd probably come out like any other journalist looking for a certain narrative which has been informed by events of the last six months with Ukraine, the perceived failure of the counteroffensive last year, the fact that we've had the outbreak of war in the Middle East again flaring up in Israel, that's a turned attention elsewhere and also the prospect of a Trump presidency who, if he gets in, has pledged to cut funding to Ukraine and force them to the negotiating table. So sometimes you have to be wary of not trying to write your own kind of narrative too much and just be persuaded by the facts you see on the ground. But I think it is fair to say that it's a lot easier to find soldiers who are downbeat at the moment. On the other hand, we are in the middle of winter and we are in the immediate aftermath of the Russians retaking a city that the Ukrainians did decide to allow them to take at very considerable cost. I think the estimates are that something like, I think, 17,000, maybe 20,000 Russian troops have died to retake this city of um, Avdivka. It's 30,000 people, a, a tiny little town with a coke plant, you know, an old heavy industrial Donbass city. It's the rough equivalent, I think, of the Russians taking somewhere like Scunthorpe near where I used to work on my local paper. And no offence to the residents of Scunthorpe, but I don't think um, anyone who retook Scunthorpe during a war for Britain would exactly think that that was the uh, the end of the story. So that that is, yeah, it does need to be put in perspective. And then Come the summer, uh, as we've seen before, all kinds of things can suddenly make be a game-changer on the battlefield. Some of the troops I was speaking to said that one of the things that's really changed at the moment is that the Russians have night-vision first first-person view drones, these drones that can fly bombs directly down onto troops. The Ukrainians don't have them at the moment, and as long as that imbalance remains... Then the Russians get the upper hand quite quickly, but as we've seen in this war, with you know the technological upper hand can change quite quickly. And if the Ukrainians can find something to plug that or stop that, it may well be that the, that the battle evens up in their favour again. And also the other thing is that when you know when you've covered this war for this long, you realise also that just one taking one town like Avdivka. It may sound significant, it may get a lot of coverage in the newspapers, but it doesn't lead to an immediate Ukrainian rout of hundreds of of thousands of troops, nor does it happen when the Ukrainians do it the other way around. They simply move a few miles down the road. It's not a sort of sudden crumbling of of the defensive lines. But yes, definitely not a very upbeat picture at the moment.
2: Thank you very much, Colin. I'm just going to bring in jokes in a second, because I think he has some questions. But you were just addressing a question I was about to ask you, which was that there's been a a lot of speculation about where will the new front line be? Have the Ukrainians prepared an adequate front? Um, I take it from what you just said there that actually, it currently seems relatively stable. You've got a sense of where the line is stabilizing following this battle? Or did things still seem fairly fluid?
4: It's hard to say, really. I mean, we're not getting within, within much more than 15 miles of of where Avdivka actually is. And so I would be lying if I really sensed I knew, like some general, what exactly was going on Im- immediately outside the city. But certainly you've not seen... Large, I certainly haven't seen large convoys of troops fleeing down a road or anything like that, like you might expect to see a retreating army doing a Pathé newsreel or anything of that sort. I think it's a strategic withdrawal to some extent, having exacted a pretty fearfully high price from the Russians in much the same way as they did in Bakhmut. Um, the problem, though, of course, is that the despite the widespread predictions that very high troop losses would eventually cause Russia problems, that doesn't seem to have happened. And uh, that was something that the general Zaluzhny, um, the, the outgoing general who was removed from his post just a few weeks ago, he said that was one of his miscalculations. He expected that by making Russia bleed heavily, he would that would eventually sap Russian resolve or Mr. Putin's resolve. And as we've seen, no such thing has happened, unfortunately.
2: Hmm. Um,
1: thank you, Colin. Joe, did you, uh, I think you have a question for Colin? Yeah, a couple of questions. Hi, Colin, good to hear from you. Nice, as always. What well, it kind of follows on from what Roland was saying. Um, were you seeing defensive infrastructure like concrete, bollards, stuff to build trenches with being taken towards the front? Because one of the criticisms with the withdrawal from Avdivka is basically yes, the Ukrainians didn't have enough ammunition, that's probably the key driver of that withdrawal, but also they have not prepared adequate sort of defensive fortifications. And one of the ideas is Ukraine wants to remain flexible. The heavier the fortification, the more stagnant you're emitting the line is going to be. But is it maybe now is the time that Ukraine is going to seek to put a heavier fortification on that front line? Is that something you're seeing?
4: Well, certainly. We were up in one village where we did see a large quantity of dragon's teeth. Those are the kind of pyramid-shaped stone blocks that are sown into fields, which are designed to stop Russian tanks advancing. The Russians have them the same in the same fashion to stop the Ukrainians advancing them advancing. But they, these ones were certainly not operational. They were they were dumped by a an abandoned cultural centre, which had also taken a direct hit from a Russian missile. They looked like they had been newly placed there, I would say. But I have yet to see large numbers of these things being scattered or sewn around. No, the, the, there's no particular evidence of that. But w- once again, it could well be happening somewhere in the 17 miles between the nearest I got to avdivka and Avdivka itself. And I would not be any the wiser at the moment.
1: Then the other one, Colin, that I'd like to hear from you, and it's to provide some anecdotal evidence. I remember a piece that Roland did, and I think you were by just outside of Bakhmut, Roland, at the start of the counteroffensive in the summer. And you could notice that, so when you're near artillery systems, even if you're within miles of them, you can hear them. They're really bloody loud. And as fighting picks up, Ukraine was said to be firing between three thousand and six thousand 6,000 rounds a day across the front line. And those the whooshes and bangs and crashes of artillery fire is quite noticeable. What was it like when you were near the front, Colin, now to sort of highlight the lack of ammunition? Because it's, it's hard. The West sort of Western officials, when you speak to them at these security briefings and the Ukrainians, won't admit just how problematic the shortages are on a day-to-day basis. So I was wondering if you could give us some anecdotal evidence comparing sort of artillery duels that you've experienced previously.
4: Well, th- I mean, my own experience of being up in these front lines is limited to just a few hours. And... It would perhaps be remiss of me to judge, pass any judgment on the absence of bangs that I heard when I was up there. I certainly didn't hear any. It was not very kinetic, but that could have been because I was at a spot that was relatively quiet or due to a, a lull in the battle. But certainly the troops that I've been speaking to did say, look, we've had these shortages since about the summer of last year. They predate, to some extent, the, the big rows that have been going on in the EU and the US over eight blocks to aid packages. They seem to go back to back in the middle of the summer when the counteroffensive was, un- was just getting underway and things generally seemed to be all OK. I also spoke to some troops in October of this year who had been supplied with some British weapons, some artillery weapons, and they had... Uh, said that we can't use them anymore. Nice gun, but sorry, we've got no ammunition for it and uh, it's not worth lugging around if we can only fire it two or three times a week. And while it's tempting to sort of blame all this on the wrangling in the in the US, the other big problem is that um, the EU, according to military people I've spoken to, uh, and Britain have simply not been able to provide enough ammunition. I think the EU had a had a target of a million rounds by the end of last year. They only got to about half a million one former British defence attaché I spoke to said, look, we we missed the boat here. The moment that this war started, we should have been on it, building new artillery factories, massively ramping up production and just generally getting ahead of the game for once. But that has not happened and clearly Ukraine is paying the price.
2: You've been up around Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, I believe, as well. Yep. And I was I was seeing some reports yesterday that those cities which have always been kind of the the heavily fortified um, epicenter of Ukraine's presence in the Donbass, that they've been, although they're kind of, you know, 20 miles away from the actual front line, that they've been getting, receiving more missiles recently. That's always been the case, but apparently it's picked up. Have you got any sense of that, of the mood in the kramatorsk Slavyansk kind of direction?
4: Yes, I mean, not specifically, well, I mean, Kramatorsk got hit, Uh, I think the day before yesterday, and uh, I'm staying not far from Kramatorsk, I won't say where, but I I heard uh, the sound of one of the missiles, it struck, I think, a water treatment plant. This kind of thing happens there fairly often. But certainly in some of the towns like Salidova, which are rather closer to Avdivka, the residents there that we spoke to said there'd been a definite uptick since about the new year in in terms of um, shelling, often going on all night and sometimes till four in the morning. And I think a, a number of people possibly planning on moving out, although. Most of these towns are practically ghost towns anyway. There are a few hardy souls still living there, mainly elderly people. And uh, the, the there is a sense that perhaps the Russians may come knocking on the door again at some point, but it, I doubt it would be particularly imminent. You're certainly not seeing any big, big outflow of people right now. Although there are something like 700 people still living. In, um, uh, in in Avdivka itself, local residents who've just stayed there the whole time. We spoke to one rescuer a couple of days ago, actually, uh, part of a police unit of volunteer rescuers who've been picking people up from Avdivka. And he told an interesting story, actually. He said that one one local family that he rescued who was full of thanks for him at the time they've since surfaced on russian tv they've they've obviously made it from the ukrainian side of the border over to the russian side and rather than thanking him they were slagging him off and saying they were plucked away from the town by some fascist and uh, I'm very glad now to be safely back in the bosom of Mother Russia. His view was, well, never mind, um, at least I got the kids out. But that shows you, to some extent, the the conflicting loyalties, I think, of some of the people in this part of the world.
2: Have you had any sense of what's going over towards the kind of bakhmut shasev yard direction? And I'm asking that partly because I'm so familiar with it, and I think we've all passed through that area at certain points, but also because there have... In within this, this these reports, this narrative of, of, of Russian pushing along the front line, there have been a couple of a couple of suggestions that the Russians are making a a, a more concerted push to to get into Chasiv at the moment. Any sense of the I don't know the dynamics in that area?
4: One one sense of the dynamic, which was that we hope to go to Chasiv and we've been told we can't because it's too hot, as in too too active, too much fighting there. Last time I was here, I think we went and the time before, this time it's off limits. Yeah, I think that would suggest that the Russians are trying to push down into there quite a bit, yeah.
2: Coming up, I ask Joe and Colin for their final thoughts.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkled down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
2: Joe, if you're still there, do you have any final thoughts?
1: Yeah, I do. And I'm gonna stick on the NATO trend. Um, so Jens Stoltenberg's given quite an interesting interview to Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, where he has essentially said that Ukraine is right to strike Russian military targets outside of Ukraine. He's basically suggesting that Ukraine is well within its rights when it's using NATO standard weapons gifted to it by NATO allies to hit targets inside Russia. The Brits, I think, said this, and I remember writing it, was actually James Heapy when he was a defence minister, said this in April 22. But NATO has always been a lot more cautious, and you'd note the Americans and Germans, I believe, don't say or use the same sort of language. But for Jens Stoltenberg, who has always seem to be cautious and basically suggest NATO is not involved in any kind of conflict with Russia, which is accurate, but it's a narrative that the Russians and the Kremlin always try to spin. So I think it's interesting that he has essentially escalated his rhetoric on this. And I will read his quotes. So it's for each and every ally to decide whether there are some caveats on what they deliver and different allies have a different, have a bit different policies on that. But in general, we need to remember what this is. This is a war of aggression by Russia against Ukraine in blatant violation of international law. And according to international law, Ukraine has the right to self-defense, and that includes also striking legitimate military targets, Russian military targets outside Ukraine. That is international law, and of course, Ukraine has the right to do so to protect itself. It's a an interesting step up of rhetoric. And just see, is it an attempt to encourage? The Germans who are stalling on the Taurus missile because they're worried of escalation or potentially the Americans who are stalling on offering up the longer range version of the attack um, to Ukraine. Is it an attempt not coerce them, but just sortly, slightly pressure them into being more creative, more ambitious with their donations to Ukraine when Ukraine is suffering from such a, acute conventional ammunition shortages right now? Thank you very much, Joe. Colin, you are a man in the ground on Donbass.
2: Um, you and uh, and Julian, we should say, because I do feel like we do sometimes forget about the poor old photographers who who do an amazing job when we're out there as well. Would you like to have the final word?
4: Uh, yes, um, just a couple of f- reflections on the actual process of reporting here. Quite often, when when we're here, we just we, we sometimes rely to some extent on official access to the soldiers which when time, when things have been going better here, that's never really been a problem. But on this occasion, we've done a lot more unofficial interviews with soldiers just off the record as they're standing by the roadside and things like that. I think that the fact that a lot of them are, does suggest that they – things are going hard, when things are going well, they tend to be a little more little more reticent actually, and observant of rules about who they talk to when. But one thing you do notice is that there's kind of two classes of soldiers out here. There's those who are perhaps behind operating towards the rear echelons and are not right in the front, who... who look generally more bright and about their business. And then there are those who look like they have come from the depths of hell in the trenches and so on. They're often the ones who are dirty, who are ragged looking, who are smoking and so on. And they while they are the ones who often have the stories to tell they're often the hardest to get anything out of not i think because they don't wish that they that they wish to keep their, what is going on secret but they just look uh, physically and mentally fried it is really quite it's one of those occasions where you hear about soldiers looking exhausted and you see them sometimes and you really think you oh know my god that guy has been pushed to the point of exhaustion in a way that I will never understand. They don't really react to questions very much. They don't stand and give you detailed accounts of battles. even if they want to talk. They just say, you know, what do you think it's like? How, what, what do you imagine it's like being seen or your mates die? It, it, it's quite a, a quite a visceral experience interviewing them or trying to. It's often pretty hard to get much out of them except a few throwaway quotes that in in a sense sometimes speak volumes as per my earlier comment about that soldier saying that things are a bit f-u-c-k-e-d yeah it does make things difficult but it also makes me wonder what what kind of political constituency those people will form in ukraine there's a lot of them possibly several million really including when you add in their families and so on who, who often suffer Indirectly from this, what kind of political constituency will that be in Ukraine if those people feel that after all this time their efforts get let down because of a lack of weaponry from the West? I don't think that's a sort of something we really want. It's not an ideal outcome. You have a, wartime generations are often very volatile and embittered anyway, and you do not want them. It would be good if they didn't not have that focus for their anger going in that direction
3: Ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph to stay on top of all of our Ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground subscribe to the Telegraph you can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward Ukraine the latest or sign up to dispatches a world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow the Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.
5: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus,